0: the host of Imagine Publicity on Air, where I share featured guests from a variety of fields, like authors, activists, and artists, and try to intersperse episodes with occasional marketing tips for businesses um, or for individuals. If you're out there trying to work your social media management and you don't know what you're doing, give me a call. Um, If you're a fan of true crime, specifically serial killers... You have questions, at least 101 of them. And our guest today answers the most popular in her new book, Serial Killers, 101 Questions True Crime Fans Ask. Dr. Joni Johnston is a practicing clinical forensic psychologist, private investigator, and crime writer. For over 25 years, she's worked in prisons, courts, and hospitals with both victims and offenders. She hosts Unmasking a Murderer on YouTube to understand the why of criminal behavior. She hosts the podcast, The Forensic Psychologist, which explores the intersection between true crime, human nature, and social justice. She also writes for Psychology Today and has authored several books, which all of this I I will link in the show notes for all of you to take advantage of. So today, we're going to discuss Joni's book, published by my partner, Wild Blue Press. Joni, it's great to have you here. Well, I am thrilled to be here. Great. You know, you have some impressive credentials. And your work to understand the intersections of psychology and a criminal mind to me is amazing. I always have those questions. So tell us what inspired you to pursue the exploration of crime and criminals and besides your clinical and forensic practice and writing. I know your career takes you into a lot of other realms and maybe you'd like to share that with us.
1: Well, I should start out by saying that there's probably a hereditary component to it in that my mom was an avid true crime reader. So I grew up with her watching all these shows and just being so interested in that. And so I think I have that kind of background. And then when I was 14, I was on a family vacation and somehow picked up Helter Skelter, which was the book about Charles Manson and his family. And absolutely read this book and just could not understand why anyone would kill somebody they didn't even know. It just didn't make any sense to me. And so I might have just continued to be a true crime, I guess, aficionado, except when I was a senior in high school. This is dating me quite a bit, but it's a true story, so I'm not going to change it. Um, I was in high school, and Ted Bundy escaped from a a jail in Colorado and made his way to Florida about 80 miles from my house and killed a couple of sorority sisters in the Kiamega house. And I think that event really did kind of transform me from somebody who might have always been interested in true crime to somebody who was just determined to try to figure out again, why, you know, why are there individuals who Prey on innocent victims? Why are there people who prey on strangers? What can we do, if anything, to prevent that person um, from de- from developing that way? Um, how do we help victims? All those questions that I'm still trying to answer.
0: You know, I think Helter Skelter was everybody's introduction <laughs> to true crime reading, especially. And, and, well, of course, the case was on the news everywhere. So, yes. Tr- Charlie Manson kind of brought us into that true crime world. And, you know, the public's fascination with it and serial killers especially, you know, it's the number one genre in all forms of media. Why in in the studies that you've done and and in your work, why do we as a society immerse ourselves in, in so much evil?
1: You know, there have been so many attempts to answer that question, and I think there's a lot of theories. It probably varies from person to person. I mean, there is certainly a very, very, very small percentage of individuals who become interested in serial killers because they're learning from them. Um, So we know that there have been a few serial killers who've actually studied other serial killers and then kind of learned some techniques and those kind of things. But, of course, that is a minuscule amount. I think for a lot of us, you know, true crime and serial killers, they're almost like, you know, modern day horror stories. And I think most of us just cannot wrap our head around the idea of somebody, you know, deciding to go out and murder somebody who they don't even know. And I think because of that, we're just, it's almost like this person looks like me. This person was raised by parents like me, but this person isn't like me. And how... How does that happen? And if I understand that, maybe I can recognize somebody who's like that, and maybe I can protect myself and prevent this from happening to
0: me and somebody that I care about. And then in respect to movies and video watching, I know a lot of opinions out there uh, are specific to you know we blame we want to blame video games we want to blame an abusive childhood but talk about the difference between gore watchers and thrill watchers and how those two um populations may shape our interest in killers well i think that you know when we look at the
1: media it, it is easy as you said there's always they're kind of like the low hanging fruit to some extent, I mean, when you look historically, you can literally find articles that were written when comic books first came out from people saying, This is the downfall of the youth, right? This is what's going to send them down the, the dark path, or this is what has sent somebody down a dark path. So it is very easy to look at, uh, you know, gore on TV or thrillers on TV and kind of blame. Um, that is kind of a negative influence and we certainly know that there's some you know there's certainly some relationship between violent pornography uh, which is of course very different than watching a true crime show there is seem to be some link between violent pornography and sexual predators for example now of course it becomes chicken or the egg what came first um, this person obviously was not had some issues before that and maybe they use this violent pornography to fuel their fantasies or get more ideas or whatever, but there really is no relationship between people who watch true crime shows or people who watch horror stories or mysteries or even, you know, gore movies and violence, and we know that.
0: That's good to know. (laughs) We're in the well, clear, I think. <laughs> yes, that, I, I know. I, know. And I, I understand you do a lot of expert testimony in, in the courtroom um, as as far as consulting about the psychology testimony and all of that. How has that played in as far as going back, you know, relating it, the blame on a video or the blame on a game or a movie?
1: I think the issue, really, when you're talking about um, some of the issues with the media, is I think the fact that there continues to be this media link that is really exaggerated um, between mental illness and, and violence, particularly serial violence, like we're talking about. And I think, unfortunately, that seems to be a theme that just continues over and over again. You know, the minute somebody shoots up a grocery store, like we just had happen, or the, you know, the minute somebody like Ted Bundy. Exist, we go, oh, this person must be mentally ill because if they weren't crazy, they wouldn't be doing these crazy things. And I think that is really such an injustice to so many people who are suffering from a serious mental illness. I mean, we know statistically that somebody who's severely mentally ill, schizophrenia, bipolar, a schizoaffective disorder, some of the major mental illnesses, they're much more likely to harm themselves than somebody else. And yet, there is this, I think, this drumbeat constantly of, you know, mental illness and violence, mental illness and violence. And um, I think there's a lot of work to be done in that arena. And so a lot of times when I'm involved in a court case, it's oftentimes the rare situation when mental illness is directly related to violence. So it's the person who, you know, develops this belief that they have to sacrifice a child because, you know, God will, um, you know, I'll give you an example because it's so rare. Herbert Mullen was a serial killer who's mentioned in my book who had a long history of psychiatric illness long before he began um, hurting other people. And he developed this belief that he was responsible for essentially preventing this catastrophic earthquake, in California. And the only way he could do that was by offering these sacrifices. And he ended up killing 11 people, um, strangers in California, on the belief that he was actually, you know, operating for the greater good. Um, yes, these people were going to die, but look at all the people who was going to be saving. Now, that is a situation that I might be called in to testify. And that is Literally, like I cannot even tell you how rare that, that type of serial killer is. You know, most serial killers, over half of serial killers have never had any kind of psychiatric diagnosis, period. And then the ones who have, it's typically things like a personality disorder or substance abuse. Those are much more common than, you know, what we think of as a mental illness.
0: Well, why do you think we just don't pay enough attention to mental illness and, and helping people with mental illness in this country?
1: I think there's such, there's just such a stigma associated. And then, of course, you kind of go, well, what, why is there a stigma? I mean, that just is something that has been around forever. There's just this sense that mental illnesses are different from physical illnesses, um, and that is just, you know, I, I, can't ima- I can't think of any time period when mental illness and physical illness, there is ever any, ever any sense that these are the same. And so there is such that bias um, that it just makes it very, very difficult to, to have an objective look at mental illness and define what is mental illness and how to, what works in preventing mental illness and all those
0: questions. Right. I guess, you know, it's not something you can see. You know, if if you have a broken leg, that's pretty tangible. You have a physical problem or if you have a disease that's physical, it has symptoms that are outward that you can see and feel and touch and, you know, pain. But with mental illness, it's it's kind of a, a murky thing, but we can't see it. We don't know if that person has a mental illness because it doesn't show. That is such a
1: great point. You're absolutely right. I mean, I I think that's kind of a given on the one hand, but, yeah, I mean, that's huge. I mean, how do we get our head around and wrap our arms around something that is invisible, that we can't see? And I think that does prevent such a huge challenge, especially when, you know, you know, we all have this sense of like, oh, we can recognize somebody who's evil because they're going to be ugly, right? I mean, it's like <laughs> how kids think. And of course, we know that that's just not the case. And so you're right, it makes it very difficult to, you know, to understand uh, mental illness and, and emotional challenges and those kinds of things, because we don't, we can't see anything wrong. That person might look just like me and just like you.
0: Right. That's why they say you could be You could have a serial killer in your neighborhood and never know it. Like many of them just walked through society. No one ever knew what they were really doing. And I want to switch a little bit. You stated in your book, mass murder has sort of replaced the serial killer as the number of serial murders has decreased. And yet the number of mass murders has increased. What's going on here? We don't know what's going on here. I mean, there's, which is, you know, we we
1: know that statistically there's been like an eighty-five percent decrease um, in the number of serial killers in the past thirty years, and um, and at the same time that we've seen this decrease in serial killers, it's been this increase in mass in mass, you know, murders, and there's some. Theory that is this kind of the new serial killer that you know it's kind of this inverse relationship that one is replacing the other Um, and you know and you could make that argument I think on the other hand that there's some dissimilarities between you know serial killers and mass murderers that it's hard for me to really believe that one is really a substitute for the other because they're, they're just, the de- dynamics are so different. Um, so there, there, there does seem to be some zeitgeist that happens, um, you know, at various decades at various time periods that tends to kind of, you know, lead individuals who are struggling or who, who are, you know, having some kind of serious problems already, for that kind of to manifest itself in a certain way. And maybe in the, you know, again, 70s, 80s, and 90s, it was the serial killer, and today it is the mass murder. So it, it is interesting that to see this kind of inverse relationship and this, this kind of question mark. You know, Nobody can really answer. And then, of course, there are some people who say, well, no, they're just not getting caught that maybe there aren't just as many serial killers as there were 30, you know, 30 years ago or 20 years ago. They're just getting better at not, you know, at not getting caught. And there is also some evidence that the solve rate for crimes has gone down. So it's just very complicated. And, you know, I don't know that we're ever going to know the complete answer, but it sure is a lot of fun trying to figure that out.
0: Well, in your work, is there is there a difference in the psyche or the motivation between a serial killer and a mass murderer?
1: Well, I think, you know, that when you think about, um, you know, a serial killer, I think we tend to think of, uh, you know, the ones that we know about um, with Jeffrey Dahmer, um, John Wayne Gacy, sex is, you know, is, a huge motivator when you're talking about sexual, I mean, sorry, when you're talking about serial killer, you don't see that when you're talking about a mass murder. Um, So the motives are oftentimes different. Um, Just the way that they're, you know, um, the way that they kind of manifest themselves in terms of, you know, a serial killer is, you know, oftentimes uh, stalking one individual is more of an upfront and personal where you have, um, you know, somebody who's doing a mass murder will do a one-time kind of, Big thing, like we're talking about um so so you you do see some different dynamics when you're talking about serial killers versus um people who you know again shoot up a school or shoot up um a concert or whatever versus somebody who like the guy who died recently james uh, Joseph Duncan, who just died this past week um
0: who just you know anyway. Right, right. And, and within the context of serial killers, you brought up a good point. Is there, are there categories that different serial killers would fall into, like sexual motivation, violent motivation, whatever other types of motivation might be?
1: Well, one, you know, one thing we know, for example, is that when you're talking about female serial killers, um, you're more likely to see motives that involve money or financial gain. So, you know, we tend to typically think of the sexually motivated serial killer. That's kind of the poster child uh, for the serial murder. Um, and, it, you know, it's almost always a man, although, you know, up to a third can involve a male-female partnership. So, yeah, you definitely can find individual you know, serial killers who have different motives. They're just not the ones that we typically think about. You know, we don't think about the, um, the person who's in the hospital who's quietly killing their patients one by one. And yet that's a serial killer as much as somebody who's stalking, you know, children or, you know, or those kind of things, the ones that we kind of typically think of. But the ones that kind of get the most press and, the, you know, kind of the most airtime are the ones who are like the John Wayne Gacy's and the Jeffrey Dahmer's and, the, you know, the, the kind of the sexually motivated serial killers. But that certainly is not all of them by any means. There are different motives that, that
0: can motivate and drive serial killers. Well, and one of the interesting stories in your book, I thought and i I really didn't know about this was Ashton Kusher as a suspect. can you tell uh, tell us that story?
1: Can you even imagine yeah Michael
0: garagelo
1: no. I'm, I'm not sure I can totally say that, but michael garagelo yeah was um a, a you know is a serial killer who i I'm trying to think of i'm actually trying to think of um the woman. Sorry about this. I'm kind of blanking really quickly. Anyway, Ashton, yeah, Ashton Cooker, Kushner had, had a date um, with, with this woman. And kind of at the last minute, um, you know, he didn't show up, and the, the timing got off. And, um, you know, the, um, Ashton Kushner thought he was meeting his, his date, and she thought he was meeting her date. And as it turns out, Michael Garagelo ended up murdering this person that had a date with Ashton Kushner. Um, and so, of course, he absolutely panicked. When they discovered the body, he, he panicked because he thought he was a suspect. He actually was at her house knocking on her door. Um, yeah,
0: can you even imagine that? I can't. That's why I found it so fascinating that, um, you know, it was kind of a, basically a set of circumstances that he fell into. Um, but I, I can't imagine being on that end of it. Well, Yeah, I mean, Um,
1: Go ahead. ahead. No, I yeah, I can't either. I mean, I cannot even imagine and this is this was a man who would you know, was actively stalking his victims and so you can only I mean I can only imagine like you were saying Ashton Kutcher who's going to pick up this woman who he knows a little bit, doesn't know that well and it's his date and he's kind of excited about it and then there again there's this kind of you know, he doesn't show up and she doesn't show up and there's this kind of, you know, time delay and he goes back, looks through her window, sees this kind of red thing on the carpet, thinks it's spilled wine. He's really late. So he thinks she's given up on him and he leaves with, of course, his finger, you know, his fingerprints and handprints on the door and then finds out the next day that his date has been murdered.
0: Yeah, knowing his fingerprints are on the door. Yeah,
1: <laughs> And just to just be, you know, it'd just be heartbreaking to think that, you know, I mean, we'd all wonder, you know, could I have done anything or you know, all that? I mean, it just becomes oh. so complicated.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, yes, I'm sure that. Whole evening replayed in his mind hundreds of times. Well, what about, okay, you know, speaking of, of categories, I guess we're talking about mass murderers versus serial killers. And how does a contract or mob hired killer, how is is that going to be categorized as a serial killer or a mass murderer because they were hired to do this? And I think about. Uh, you know, Richard Kalinske, the Iceman, and Robert Prong, this Mr. Softy, who they actually worked together and were hired together. How does that fit in?
1: They're kind of on the fringes. I mean, I think technically they would definitely fit the category. I mean, when you look at what is the definition of a serial killer, depending upon the definition you use, it's either two or three um, you know, murders that occur um Spread out over a period of time. So if you have somebody who's murdered, who murders somebody, you know, in January, and then they murder somebody in October, or, or you know, murders, you know, some some um, definitions say you have to have three or more victims, then that person technically is a serial killer. Now we tend to look at it again differently and kind of go, what, well, what are the motivations and, and those kind of things. But that really is kind of what it is. So the you know the Ice man and those kind of things. There are some individuals who say, yeah, you know, if they're motivated, they're, they're motivated. By financial gain, um, so that person would be um, also be a serial killer. I think there are other people who would say, well, you know, it might be part of an organized organization. Um, we don't typically think of gangs or gang members as being serial killers, so there is kind of a you know a distinction depending upon how you look at it. I think most people that I know, most professionals that I know, probably would exclude. Um, you know the ice man is more if it's more of a more of a, almost like an occupation as opposed to to something else, but he also um i know the iceman also not only not only you know killed people for for fun as well as for money, so that kind of makes it a little more blurred
0: it does and i you know i guess I was wondering had had the mob not hired iceman and mr Softy or any any number of other hired uh, hit men would do you think that they would have the motivation to just go out and be serial killers on their own well i think that's where it kind of
1: does get you know when you look at again like at the ice man it's kind of like he kind of presents that more initially as more like a you know an occupation this is kind of what i do this is how i make a living um and yet when you really read about him what you find is yeah he he killed people for all different kinds of reasons so there are people I think who you know would would you know arguably again working for a hitman for a gang or for the mafia or whatever who would say no I'm not a serial killer you know if it wasn't my job if I, you know if I wasn't working in this capacity I would never hurt anybody else um, and that person we might kind of go no this really isn't a serial killer in the way that we think of them and then you have other people like I said who may you know kill people for hire or whatever and yet murder be, uh, kind of becomes a problem-solving strategy for that person. They kill for lots of different reasons and, and enjoyment might be what might be one reason. So there you know I wish we could put people neatly in these categories and they would stay there,
0: you know. Um, <laughs> they it, kind of jump around a work little that bit. Way. No. <laughs> well, let's talk about serial killer groupies, the sort of people on the fringes that idolize or fall in love with or become fans of the actual killer. Can
1: you, yeah, can you, I'm kind of, kind of missed what you were saying. Sorry about that. Um,
0: well I, I know that there is a category of serial killer groupies who are kind of on the fringes they mm. you know become mm-hmm. enamored with this person maybe they saw the case on the news or they became very involved in the case through one right. avenue or another and um again i think there is all sorts of um how do i want to say uh not categories. I'm, I'm done with categories. What is the word I'm trying to say? <laughs> Levels, I suppose, of groupies that, you know, go all the way up to marrying someone. Yeah. How do you speak yeah. to that? It's, uh, yeah, that is,
1: that is such a a mystery in some respects for me. I mean, there's this kind of hebristophilia, which you may be familiar with, which is kind of a term that's been developed that has been actually developed to describe that, you know, somebody who's sexually attracted to, you know, somebody who's violent or somebody who's sexually attracted to a serial killer uh, or whatever. I mean, yeah, it's just... It's kind of hard to get. It is. It's kind of hard to get your head your head around that. I mean, there's again, there's tons of theories about why somebody would be interested in a groupie. Um, you know, again, it could be that there's this kind of sexual attraction to this kind of violence. Some people say, well, it's just because, you know, you have you have a captive audience, right? I mean, you have somebody who who you know who's kind of interested in those things. Um, who likes the attention, who likes to think they have, they're having a real relationship when they're really not. I mean, how much, more of a, how much of a relationship can you have with somebody who's going to be behind bars for the rest of their life? You have some people who say, well, this is it's because they're a captive audience. I mean, you're going to have this person's undivided attention. Um, you know, there are some people who say, I'm kind of um, interested in, you know, I'm attracted to the violence. I'm attracted to that. So, again, it's just there are so many possible explanations for that. And what you just said I think is really interesting is there's kind of a continuum or you know or a level you know i mean there are people who are kind of fascinated by you know the bad guy right the bad person the bad boy i mean there's there have always been people who are kind of interested in that and then you're right you have people all the way up to somebody who who marries somebody that they're never going to have a real relationship and how do you kind of explain that
0: yeah it's sort of a thing to itself that needs to be looked into closer i suppose in 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 the overall scheme of human nature you know what what is human nature doing next one thing that i feel is something that's really not talked about or not nothing really is done about it over the years that um i've known certain people whose family members have uh, created crime within their family and they've had to deal with it because they are family members so there's a a stigma towards the families and the members who had nothing to do with the crime or nothing to do basically with the criminal actions of, of their loved one but they suffer just through that association I think that is that is so true I mean,
1: I, I would like to be optimistic, and I am optimistic. I mean, you look at some uh, some children of serial killers who are, have actually come out more recently and talked about it, talked about the impact. I mean, I think that does reflect some progress and some change in the fact that just because my dad was a serial killer, it shouldn't have impacted me. But I think we have a long way to go. And I think we often don't think of the fact that, Family members of perpetrators or offenders are also victims. You know, they're victims in terms of having to, be, to deal with the fallout from that, how people look at them, um, the publicity, the media, and all that. And you're absolutely right. I think that is a, probably a group that really, you know, um, they, they suffer.
0: Well,
1: and do, they do you feel like- that shame and that stigma and that all that?
0: Do you feel like some of these family members as victims could be the first victims of these uh, criminals? I'm not going to say every criminal goes out there as a serial killer or a murderer, but um, towards violence, you know, any type of violent act. Uh, sometimes these family members are their first victims. Yeah. Yeah. So they've I mean, had to so. live with that
1: yeah I mean I think that those that probably is a you know a group that we don't think about in terms of victims um when it you're right, I think a lot of times they are the first victims um and I think this whole issue of you know of victims and perpetrators and all i mean it just becomes so so interested in so, i mean it's so blurry to some extent um you know somebody who starts out as a victim can become a perpetrator and and vice versa so it's just a really, it's a very interesting, I think, discussion and something that's really important when you're talking about, you know, you have these, again, these kind of quotes, like you said, offenders or, quote, criminals or, quote, perpetrators. And then you have these innocent family members who are just kind of caught in the crossfire of all this and have to deal with the fallout from it. And then, of course, you have the fact that a lot of times families of origin that some of the perpetrators, um, you know, is there's kind of been a generational part of it, if you know what I mean right there's been trauma that becomes perpetration that becomes trauma i mean it just it just can um i mean I always say it just takes one you know healthy parent and that's definitely true but um it is it's also important to realize that you know it's it it, it the trauma is is there and it's real
0: well, talk about the ripple effect that one criminal act can have not only on a family but on a community as well. I mean, I
1: don't think we can overemphasize the impact and the fallout um, that oftentimes comes with with one of these crimes. I mean, there are so many people that we don't even think about, just like we were just saying, just the family – Members of the perpetrators is, is, you know, somebody or people that we don't typically think about when we think about the fallout. And then you have the extended family members. And you have the community that no longer feels as safe. Um, you know, you have, you have occasionally you have, you know, um, I not think I'm trying to say, um, you know, again, you have copycats. I mean, there's, there's just endless ways that can be, that, you know, you have children who are involved. You have siblings who are involved. I mean, you have, you know, again, you have the families of the victims, and you have extended families of the victims. I mean, just, it's so tragic, and it's infuriating sometimes when you see that, that you know, an act or, um, can just have such a long-lasting impact uh, on people. That's, it's really challenging and frustrating to even think about that.
0: It truly is. And one of the things that you addressed in your book or or relayed in your book was how to escape from a serial killer. I know we've come across a lot of people who've come forth who were possibly um, victims of Ted Bundy or other high-profile serial killers out there who were actually able to escape. Is there kind of a Little roadmap that would tell people how to keep themselves safer, and if you get in that situation, what's the best thing to do?
1: Well, obviously, um, the best is to not get in that situation, and I'm, I'm I'm not saying that like just lightly because there's just some pretty grim statistics, um, and that statistic is you know there is you know hands down for the most part your chances of success or escape um, that the chances of survival go down drastically once that person has control over you. Once you're in that car, uh, once you're in that house, the odds of survival go drastically down. And so I think that if there's any message, that would be it. Um, You know, when when we look at people who've escaped, it's overwhelming. These are individuals who ran, jumped out of a car, escaped, or whatever, and so I know when talking to my daughters, I'm always telling them that that I don't care if somebody's waving a gun at you, waving a knife at you, you are better off running or fighting back than you are getting in that car, um, or, or escape. And the other part, of course, are just the, the normal safety tips, not walking alone at night, and those kind of things. We also know that, you know, the average serial killer approaches 31 people before they get somebody under their control. So a lot of that is just, you know, again, doing safety measures, um, you know, making sure that you aren't walking alone at night by yourself, that you are walking with people and people know where you're going to be and those kinds of things. But, the, again, the overwhelming, you know, the overwhelming odds just go down so drastically. Um, you know, and, and, and you think about how, how easy it would be to, to think the opposite, to feel like, okay, this person's waving a knife at me, this person's threatening me with a gun. I'm gonna comply and then figure it out later. I'm gonna comply and escape later, and that just absolutely does not seem to be to be borne out.
0: I've heard the same thing too is the fact that um if you leave point a, you're pretty much done it uh it's It usually does not work out very well in the end um by giving in basically and going with someone to another location they they do you think that they have? specific locations either in the back of their mind or already part of their plan that if they get someone to go with them, this is where we're going and this is what we're going to do.
1: Yeah. I think it's, it's oftentimes very well thought out, Um, you know, and it's just, it's just, it's so depressing when we talk about this, I mean, like I said, when we, when we talk about escape, I mean, I did do some research on that. There is, there are, literally are some kind of studies that, that support that, but it's just so challenging to, you know, and so depressing to think about the fact that, you know, a lot of times when you look at the people who get away, um, it's, it's luck or it's somebody at the serial killer who's early in his, you know, quote, killing career. And so, you know the violence isn't as great. The person, the, the serial killer thinks this person is dead and leaves this person. I mean, it's just so there's a certain degree of luck that we know is involved in people who survive. And then, you know, another thing that we do find um, with among survivors, and again this can vary, this varies drastically, is that individuals um, who've survived, there have been some who have managed to establish somewhat of a relationship or an emotional connection with that perpetrator. Um, and so it, as opposed to, you know, a lot of times serial killers will not want to talk to that person or make eye contact with that person because they're going to kill them, right? They don't want there to be any kind of connection. And There have been a few um, incredibly brave individuals, and lucky as well, who literally managed to, in a short period of time, break through that kind of anonymity. They're, they talked about you know having a child that they take care of, um, found some kind of way to connect um, with that serial killer to the point that they were able to either you know to get away or they were able to talk that person into letting them go. But again, that's has that not the norm by any by any sense.
0: Uh, it doesn't seem to be. I'm, you know, one of the things that we talked about off air was I. I have a connection to a missing persons organization that I have volunteered with for many, many years. And question number 97 in your book, I would like for you to talk about what is life like for the family of a missing person? Uh, yeah, that is just
1: really, really hard. I mean, I think, I don't know that if there's anything worse. I've often said there's a special kind of hell, I think, for family members who have a missing person um, and they don't know what happened to him or her. I think sometimes we like to fantasize that, you know, not knowing is better than knowing the worst case scenario, but there's a lot of research and certainly personal experience which really suggests the opposite, that when there's this kind of ambiguous loss or ambiguous grief that families are going through and not knowing I think is the absolute worst because there's a sense that I can't give up hope. If I give up hope I'm letting that person down. And yet how do you go on with your life if you maintain you know, if you with that hope? I mean it's just it's it's just the worst place to be this limbo that families are in. And, I, and, and time and again in working with the victims and family members of victims, I often hear, you know, I, I just want to know. I just want to know. There's nothing worse than having this, this question, um, this mystery that, that is just so heartbreaking and scary and terrifying. and heart, just, So I, I don't know that there's anything worse than that
0: and the, yeah it it's kind of like that loop that you have playing in your head over and over 24 hours a day and it it is such torture um one one question that i have and i've i've run across this uh in several of the cases that i've seen is you know they a lot of most not most times sometimes a missing person will end up being a homicide. And I think the worst thing that I see happening is they're able to catch this person or they may confess to the crime or whatever, but by golly, they won't tell where those remains are. Why? Why is that? I think it's a control thing. I think that, you know, I mean,
1: it's just, it's horrible. How could you... You know, you're caught for the crime. You're convicted for the crime. Why would you not give some person the answer that they're looking for? But I really do feel like that control and power is such a motive for so many serial killers. It's like I'm going to hang on to the last bit of control, the last bit of power that I can, and this is it. They may have caught me do this. They may put me away, but they're not going to know where this person's body is. I'm not going to give this person the quote satisfaction. And it feels sadistic, doesn't it? I mean, when you think about it, it's like, why? And I it's think I do. I, think, sadistic, it's, I think, think it is. It really is. It's very sadistic. I think it's all about power and control. You know, sometimes just- there's the. The bargaining chip, you know, hey, okay, I'm going to see if I can get what I want. But you're right. There are plenty of people who that that issue has long been solved. This person's on death row or whatever, and they're still unwilling to give that family some sense of peace or some sense of resolution. I'm, I'm purposely not using the word closure because I hate that word, and I think many family members do as well. There's no closure. Right or losing somebody but there can be a resolution there can be an answer and and certainly families deserve that and i think that's that's what it is
0: right right i i totally agree i just you know it it's just heartbreaking it's heartbreaking to see these families go through that and and they've been given the life sentence and you know, no matter what this person did or didn't do they've been given the life sentence because it's never over no matter no matter what, it's never over. It's
1: not. It's not. And one thing I, I would like to just bring up is just you know one of the things in researching my book and working with with victims and families is just one of the unsung, unsung songs I think of, of this whole kind of tragic arena is just the bravery that family members have shown and do show, and victims who survive. I mean, imagine going through a horrible ordeal and then having to, you know, get up and face this person in court and be interviewed and look this person in the face. And, and, um, and that, you know, on the one hand, we can kind of go, oh, well, of course they're going to do that. They want this person to, to you know, be put away. But on the other hand, it's like it takes an incredible amount of courage. And the family members who have lost somebody who then go on to help other people who are victims or, or who help pass laws. To protect other children or other other people, I mean, I'm just in awe of that. I mean, they really, really, are the families and the the surviving victims, I think, who are the, the un, often the unsung heroes in this, these stories.
0: I absolutely agree with you. Um, like I said, I've I've been a volunteer for Q Center for missing persons for many years, and I see so many of the search teams and people behind the scenes that work cases that do case work that do a lot of the legwork that, you know, most people don't understand behind that don't see behind the curtain. Um and a lot of it is family members. It's I, I'm just amazed at the tenacity, the strength that comes out of that human being to go through the tragedy they go through and then to, and some are still going through it, but yet they're there for the next family. They're there for the next person and to see them interact with each other. It's just, um, it's incredible.
1: It is incredible. And you know, the other part of it that is, is also incredible is, you know, how often sometimes the family members who are continuing to go back to police, And continuing to keep the case in the media, how instrumental so many families have been in finding out what happened eventually to their loved ones. I mean, we all know that, you know, law enforcement, they have how many cases? If you're the family member, you have one case. And that's your person, right? That's your person who's missing. That's your person who's been murdered. And, I mean, there have been numerous times, and I I know you're familiar with this as well, with the work that you do and the volunteer stuff that you do, there have been many family members. If, If it wasn't for them continuing to, you know, beat that drum and keep it in the forefront, you know, that case probably would never have been solved,
0: Oh, you're absolutely right. And and again, it's their tenacity to hang on to that little tidbit of information and carry it where it needs to be. Um, It's amazing. I, I interviewed... A woman, oh gosh, a couple of weeks ago, and her brother's been missing for about twenty years. I've never spoken to anyone who had so much information and data on their own case and knew I mean she had it all in her head as far as I'm sure stacks and stacks of paperwork and books that went with it. But you know it's talk about being your own advocate. this was like on steroids, she was amazing. But, um, yes,
1: it's it's it's, it is really
0: incredible. It is. It is. Well, what does this is kind of getting into a different topic? What does history show about crime? You know, if you go back in history and we look at different crimes that that were perpetrated long ago, maybe since the beginning of time, Mm -hmm. what does the criminal mind and society's reaction have to do with any of that? Wow, that is such
1: an interesting question. And I I could go off in so many different directions. I'm trying to think the best direction to kind of take this. I mean, there's so many lessons. You know, one of the things I think that um, we've become more aware of is this kind of fallacy of the good old days. Things used to be so much safer It's like, no, not really. That really is not true. We're just so much more aware. You know, we look at violence rates, and they've gone down considerably over the past 50 years, and yet um, a lot of times when we talk to the average person, they feel like the crime rate has gone, you know, drastically up. So I think one thing we've learned is that, you know, just because we didn't know about crime doesn't mean it wasn't happening. And we are probably in a safer time period today than we certainly were 50 years ago. We just didn't know that. Um I'm trying to think. Another takeaway would be, I think, is that you know, sometimes I think the culture that we live in and the time that we live in, it doesn't create criminals or serial killers, but it sometimes I think shapes the form that they take. We were talking a little bit earlier about kind of the mass murder versus the serial killer, and you know, one of the things that was interesting to me. In looking at this book and some of the writing that I do for Psychology Today, I'm also interested in, like, international serial killers. And it's just interesting to see, again, how, um, you know, how a a culture can shape, for example, who is a victim um, or who is likely to be a victim. So, for example, there's a serial killer out of Pakistan who – Killed probably a hundred children before he was caught, and you kind of go, how could that possibly happen? This person flew under the radar for that long, and then you look at, at some of the demographics in this country, and you see that there there's a huge uh, problem with poverty. There's a huge problem with uh, with children who, uh, because of this poverty, who are not as supervised as we might think would be ideal, um, and so there was an opportunity there, and of course this. You know, this country did not create this, you know, monster who preyed on these children. But it's hard to imagine um, that you would see that in the United States, for example. You would see a different. You would see uh, Samuel Little in the United States who. Is the most prolific serial killer that we know of to date in the United States, who has confessed to over 90 murders and 60 of them have been confirmed. And his victims of choice were people who had drug problems, who were sex workers, who were homeless. So his victim pool was different. And so again, you know, it's just interesting to me to see that when you look at um, at time and you look across cultures, that again, you know, all we all have our uh, you know, deviants or deviant behaviors in different cultures, but it can it can be shaped to some extent, I think, by the, not only the zeitgeist, but also by, you know, who is vulnerable? Who are the people that we don't, quote, care about as much? Um, and, of course, we care about everybody, but in terms of it's easier to, you know, serial killers um, in general, as we know, tend to pick individuals who are more vulnerable whether that's children whether that's you know the homeless whether that's people who are um, transient or people who are um you know in high risk uh, occupations because why because it, they think i'm not going to get caught as much people don't care about these individuals as much um and so i think that's another kind of interesting lesson is that it you know it kind of informs us about we need to take care of everybody in our obviously in our country in our culture and um and part of that is making sure that we're, you know, we don't have those vulnerable victims, right? <laughs> that we're that everybody has protection <clears throat> under the law. So there's just so many lessons, I think. Another kind of interesting lesson is that you know, uh situations also can kind of um influence, I think, people who are already uh probably, you know, deviant to some extent. So for example, in the 1900s <clears throat> about 35% of serial killers were women in the United States. And today it's like 8%. It's like, well, what happened? Did women just kind of not stop serial killing? Well, one of the things that we know is that you, when you compare female serial killers to male serial killers is that female serial killers as a group are more likely to be motivated by money. And so when you look at the financial and economic opportunities for women in 1900 versus today, you see that there are a lot more um, obviously, economic opportunities, a lot more uh, financial freedom that women have, and so is this the reason why we see statistically so many less female serial killers? It's hard to think that that isn't part of it. Now, it doesn't mean that in 1900 that was a, a common, you know, occupation for right, for women who are destitute by any means, but it does mean that if you have individuals, and I definitely want to you know point that out, that if you have individuals who are already psychopathic, for example, or have, uh, you know, there's, a, again, a perfect storm of maybe temperament, um, um, personality, trauma in their background, and then you have these other kind of cultural restrainc- constraints, then you, you, you start seeing that kind of pattern emerge. And so it, I think that's just fascinating to consider that.
0: Well, it, and it also says that, What you just said earlier was the fact that any of us could be a victim, depending on what pool we're swimming in, since they all have a pool of victims that they want. Um, Listen, this has been a most fascinating, fascinating conversation today. And I thank you so much, Dr. Joni Johnston, for joining me. And uh, you can pick up your copy of Serial Killers 101 Questions True Crime Fans Ask um, on Amazon or through uh, Wild Blue Press. And if you want to follow Dr. Joni Johnson, I'll have her website and other links in the show notes as well. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please follow Imagine Publicity on Air wherever you are listening to this podcast for future episodes.